But it's interesting where compassion takes you, you know, mm. and, and um, when you are kind of, you put yourself in, in tune with the universe, uh, things happen. You better, I, I tell people once you, you find your place in the universe and find your gift mm. that you want to give to the world, you better fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> because really, uh, um, yeah, it's not going to stop. Everyone you meet every single day is fighting a battle you may know nothing about. We're all in the process of overcoming. I'm Justin Wren, and my story has been heard by millions of people through my book, my TED Talk, podcast interviews, TV shows, professional fighting, and my foundation, Fight for the Forgotten. I believe we are all overcomers if we choose to overcome. We all have the option. I've been given the opportunity to overcome childhood trauma, sexual abuse, immense bullying, depression, suicidal ideation, substance use disorder, and I am a two-time suicide survivor. We are here to have conversations with some of the greatest minds of our time. Get ready to be inspired and to receive the tools and game plan to win this fight called life. Thank you for being here, for showing up for yourself. You, me, we have overcome 100% of our darkest days. I'm not done yet, and neither are you. This is your invitation to overcome. You are in for a treat today, Bernard Amade, my good friend, also a mentor of mine. He is the founder of Engineers Without Borders. He grew up in France. He now lives in Boulder, Colorado. He has been to the Amazon jungle. He has helped uh, refugee camps and develop parts of Afghanistan. He has been smuggled across country lines in Africa where he is literally crawling through the bushes to escape militias. This guy's story is powerful. It's incredible. And he has helped fight for the forgotten so much. And he has inspired me to be a better founder of a nonprofit, but also have a greater impact. And we talk about the meaning of life. And we also talk about how the gap is widening between developed nations and developing nations and how there isn't even a single, there wasn't a single college course in engineering that helped developing nations. He has rallied more than 17,000 engineers in the United States and all across the world to help those countries with clean water, with energy, with better housing, and all sorts of stuff like agriculture. You're going to be inspired, deeply inspired by this man and the movement he's created. And also, we even go into the loss of his wife and what he learned with his relationship with his best friend. And he honestly encouraged me and Amy so much in our own relationship. This is going to be the first of a couple or, I mean, a whole set of episodes I do with him over these next several years where we document the change that we're trying to make in Uganda among the Batwa Pygmy people, my second family. And uh, so buckle up, Buttercups. He said, strap yourself in whenever you get in line with the universe, in line with the divine and the purpose you have on this planet. So I think it's going to deeply inspire you. You're going to be incredibly encouraged and I think empowered to be the person you're meant to be. So thank you for being here. Here we go. Bernard, I'm so grateful that you're here. Thank uh, you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, you're one of the people that I'm most excited to have on the show. I think that you, one, you're so obviously incredibly intelligent, but I think what's so amazing for me to witness as I've gotten to know you 
is that yeah you've got a big brain but i think you have even a bigger a bigger heart that's true so yeah um i'm so grateful for you i i don't think i have a big brain all i know that i have one brain cell left and it's working all the time <laughs> so that's all but i have have a it's true that i have a big heart and yeah. it's a good thing to have and at times it can be also a problem i i can relate i can relate to that and also part of your story i mean just from hearing some of them you've been to Nepal and Belize or the Amazon and to Africa and to Afghanistan and you've had missiles fly over your head and you've been smuggled across country lines in Africa and, and crawling through the bushes. So you've lived an incredibly interesting life, but I think from just just your presence, I feel that you've lived a very fulfilling life. And, and I think a lot of people... Um, that's what they're searching for. And some people miss out on that. And you've, you've found that, and I'm excited to talk about that here today. Thank you. No, I'm very glad to share with you uh, my journey. Um, it was not planned, right? I mean, yeah. be, keep that in mind. It was not planned. But it's interesting where compassion takes you, you know, mm -hmm. and, and um, when you are kind of, you put yourself in, in tune with the universe, uh, things happen. You better. I, I tell people once you you find your place in the universe and find your gift mm. that you want to give to the world. You better fasten your seatbelt <laughs> because really, uh, um, yeah, it's not going to stop. Yeah, and it's fulfilling. At the same time, it's not easy. I mean, that journey is not easy. You know, when you see pain in the world, when you see children. Yeah. Uh, blow up in front of you where you see children die mm. in front of you um it changes you forever yeah and so there's it's compassion in action and i, I know mm. that that's one of your key, key yeah words, it's one right? of our key things yeah, whenever yeah. i watched your your ted talk it's something i've been saying for years uh put love and compassion in action and then all through your talk and every time i meet you we always say compassion in action i do believe so that's thing that you know because compassion without action is kind of sentimentalism you know mm. it's okay poor people and so on action without compassion it can be dangerous. Yeah. Uh, when you mix up the two together, um, I do believe you mentioned the heart and the head. It's really bringing the heart and the head together. And uh, if you believe in a chakra system, um, there's a heart chakra, there's head chakra there, and halfway is your throat chakra. And what turns out that the throat chakra in the yogi system is the place of creativity, and it's also the place of the voice where mm. you speak out. You know, you denounce what you see. You are creative. You're coming up with some new ideas. And it's all here. And it turns out it's halfway between the heart and the head. So, wow. so by merging the two together, you've got to, you've got to speak up. I right. think that there are too many issues on our planet today that cannot be um, kept silent. Mm. Let's put it that way. I mean, we are observing some absurd and awful situation right now in, in Ukraine and Russia, I mean, back to yeah. where we were in the 1960s. Um, we need to denounce that. Uh, we need to denounce, uh, you know, inequality and injustice that we see around us. And I think each one of us can, 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 can do something. I do believe there is a call to action for everyone. Yeah, I love that. 
even thinking about the throat chakra, that's one of Amy. Amy's in house with us. And yeah. for you, that's something that you've really been focusing on or thinking about with your voice. Oh, yeah, voice. It's really important to me. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. It's this chakra. Mm -hmm. It's that. It's the creative. Um, uh, some people call it it's the prophetic voice to a certain extent where you say, enough is enough. Mm. You know, um, I denounce what I see and I'm going to do something about it. Yeah. Well, you, you brought up a statistic um, in one of your talks. I think it was at uh, Engineers Without Borders event and it's online. And I think it's from back in, in 2012, 2014, somewhere around there. And you talked about 5,000. And I knew that, you know, at least around those days when I was living in Africa, there's about 5,000 kids a day dying of waterborne disease or sanitation and hygiene. There were 5,000 people. And I think it was around 3.4 million people a year. 2 million of those were children under the age of five. But you said something interesting that I was like, whoa, it was 5,000 people die from indoor pollution a day. 5,000 people die of water and sanitation a day. 5,000 people die a day of malaria. Um, and there were some other stats too, where it was like, oh, 5,000 a day die of tuberculosis. And that they were all completely preventable. And, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we have the know-how. Mm. We, we have enough food on our planet for everybody. Right. We have enough energy on the planet for everybody. Mm. And how come we don't do it? I think it's that lack of will, right? Mm. Um, you know, how much money we are spending on military expenditures in, in the world. It, it's not even a political statement I'm going to make. But, you know, um, if you do the math, we are spending in the world, in the world, $66,000 a second wow. on military expenditure, okay? Wow. Half of it in the U.S., pretty much. I'm not, I'm not against defense. Don't get me wrong. I, I do believe we need defense. But imagine if we were to take some of that money and in, invest that same amount of money in the humanitarian sector. Right. How do we get every child on this planet to have water, mm. to have education, to have hope, to fulfill their dreams, mm. to to be happy, to go to school, um, and so on and so forth. We can do it. Yeah. And the question is, how come we don't do it? It has to do with, I think, a, a lack of a political will, mm. in my opinion. And, um, you know, how, through all the projects you mentioned, I, I think, the, you know, there's a, a quote from Che Guevara, not this, I'm not supporting Che Guevara, but he had a great quote. I mean, some crazy people sometimes have some great statements. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he said, you know, don't try to change the world, let the world change you. Oof. And each time I go to a community, that community really changes me. Mm. There's no doubt about it. I'm a much better person than I was 20 years ago. Mm. It, it has nothing to do with, uh, with uh, my life. It has to do with all the people I've met along the path on the journey wow. and some people who don't have phds don't have mm. degrees i don't care <laughs> i mean i'm the son of a bricklayer mm. you know i mean uh, the reason i'm still at school is because my dad at the age of 18 um told me well stay at school until you cannot take it anymore <laughs> and uh, otherwise i would have been a bricklayer my brother is a bricklayer my grandfather was a bricklayer nothing wrong about yeah. 
being a bricklayer. These are very noble professions. And um, so the point I'm trying to make here is that, you know, uh, degrees don't mean absolutely anything. You know, I, I see some very strange, apathetic people on campus where I work, um, and it's really sad. At the same time, I remember children, I remember one place being in Peru, and for whatever reason, we went to an orphanage, and because they needed a um, solar water heating system. And we got into that orphanage, there were little girls there, and they saw us, and they jumped on us. Hmm. And they, this, this, the um, most um, meaningful hug I got from those little girls. Mm. A really, really genuine, you know, it's like almost I touched the fingers of God. I keep repeating that. Wow. When those little girls gave me a hug, they were not expecting anything. You know, it just, their presence mm. was really divine. And they changed my life that day. That's powerful because, yeah, some of my favorite moments have been seeing, I mean, I've, I'm a big guy going over there into uh, with the pygmy people. And sometimes I've become a human jungle gym where the kids are climbing I've on me. i pictures of you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and some of those moments, I just, I, they're unforgettable. They're irreplaceable. They're so, so special. And I think to take it back to you and your story, I truly believe that you're one of the most special human beings I've ever met in my entire life. And I know that, that you're shaking your head, but I think that, that I really want to get into your story because anybody, the thing that I think you would probably say also is anybody could do Absolutely. what you've done, but you've gone past the fear or the limit limiting beliefs or the cultural standards of people say, why would you go waste your time doing that? Or they're not our countrymen, or why would you go over there? You know, all those things you're like, no, I'm, you're determined to make the world better. And I think there's so many people out there like that, that have that desire, but they don't get to that point of putting compassion in action like you have and how you've rallied people to do the same. So maybe I should give them a recipe on how to do it. Yes, right? I would um, love that. Well, actually, it starts with oneself. I think it's sitting down with oneself. And as I ask my students, um, I'm close to retirement, so but uh, when I ask my students and say, okay, what's your gift here? What do you think is your gift on the planet? You came mm. here. Uh, you can believe in God, the divine, the cosmic soup, or whatever you, whatever you want. What do you think? You have what is your unique gift that only you can give to the world, right? And I think that's a key question. Another way of looking at it is what's your mission statement? Hmm. All companies have a mission statement. I mean, you have a mission statement in your work, right? Yeah. What's your mission statement? Can you write it down? And after that, try to live that mission statement and, and give that gift. Hmm. I think opening up to the universe and say, hey, I'm ready. Well, I just have to take a moment real quick and thank the sponsors of this show on it, on it.com slash overcome. You can save yourself 10% 
on Alpha Brain or New Mood or Total Human, some of my absolute favorites. And I'm just so grateful for their support. This show wouldn't exist without them. So thank you so much on it for sponsoring the show. And also thank you for helping me get optimized. Total Human Optimization. I also coined something maybe cheesy, but I think it's kind of cute. It's Total Humanitarian Optimization. Oh, they help me when I'm going into a long meeting for development work, community development. And I just love the way that I feel getting into that flow state faster, feeling like I stay there longer and have had so many friends try it and absolutely love it. If you haven't tried it, you can try it for free. There's an Alpha Brain free trial. I think you get 15 days of free Alpha Brain. So please, what's the risk? Put it to the test. I would love to hear your feedback on it. Try it. The world-class nootropic that uh, really helps increase clarity, your memory, and I think it helps me engage in conversation and just feel like I'm firing on all cylinders so much better. So on it.com slash overcome, you can try it for free, Alpha Brain for free, and uh, you can save yourself 10% on all on it products at overcome or on it.com slash every time. Overcome, every time. The <laughs> on O's. it, on it.com slash overcome. And at checkout, don't forget to type in overcome. Yep. Thank you so much. Uh, it may sound topic but you know um if you want to change if we want to change the world we need to change ourselves mm. right first we need to identify who we are you know there's that famous quote know thyself right know yourself who 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 are you what what gift are you willing to give to the world what can you do um i i found i found my gift by accident or not when in, in 1997, um, when essentially that was the origin of Engineers Without Borders USA, when at that time... And for uh, listeners, you're the founder of Engineers Without Borders, Borders USA and, and, right. and, and co-founder of Engineers Without Borders International. Mm. How did it happen? Well, I had been, it happened around 97. And before that, I had been a... Um, a volunteer on, on many things, Boulder Shelter for the Homeless. I mean, I even went to clown school, right? I mean, I have a clown degree. Uh, and that's, the, by the way, that's the only degree that I have in my office. Okay. You know, all, all my colleagues what, have their, What is a clown degree? A clown, clown school degree is to be okay. a clown, right? I mean- Oh, a clown. Yes, yeah, yeah, clown. yeah. yeah, yeah. I, was a, I was a good yeah. clown. Wow. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, but I, I love that. At, Sorry, I didn't hear I, it right. I, at I first. did a little bit of work at the children's hospital uh, and so on and so on. That's so, awesome. um, but it's fun to be a clown. By the way, if you've never been a clown, become a clown <laughs> because you can put a makeup and you can <laughs> just, be a wild person. <laughs> just would be a great clown. You know, I mean, and clown. here I have You'd it. Nail it. Oh, my face as a university <laughs> professor. <laughs> <laughs> my face as a clown, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, it gave me permission to be funny. Yes. It gave me permission to smile. And mm. it gave me permission not to be constipated with the rest of the <laughs> humanity, right? I mean, and, and so, so I had done all that kind of work before to be a volunteer. And then in 97, um, I needed some landscaping done and I selected a landscaping company at random, and three people came uh, a few days later. 
all three of them were, were from Belize mm. and working in Colorado at the time. And they told me about the needs of Mayan Indians, young Mayan Indians in Belize, and they asked me if I could help. I said yes. Fast forward to 1999, I got an email from one of them, say, hey, I was in your backyard two years ago. You mentioned you could help with the curriculum and developing a school. Come on over. So that's how I went to Belize in 1999, 2000, visited Mayan villages after Mayan villages, wow. and came across one village called San Pablo, and that village had little girls carrying water mm. from the river to the village, and they say, hey, you're an engineer, do something about it. And I say, what? You know, I have a PhD, blah, 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 blah. No, we don't care, but we don't ever know what a PhD is, so we don't care about it. So help us. And then so that's when my life changed. A little girl at the middle of the jungle in Belize changed my life. Hmm. Not a faculty member, not uh, you know, not a professor, a little girl. And all in a sudden, so I started the project, got some students involved, and the rest the rest is history. Wow. That's that's uh it's really unique the way that those little God winks or those divine moments, um, how the universe will conspire in our favor to get us on the right path so that we can make an impact in this world. And that's what I love about you. Jim Stewart, our executive director, is in the other room listening in. Um, and he drove down, and I love what he talks about. He, he says ROI, but instead of return on investment, he's like, what's the return on impact? And, and how are you impacting the world? And I might be slaughtering that for how he says it, but it's – He's an impact-driven person. You're an impact-driven uh, person. But I saw this quote that really helped me. It's from back in like 2016. But people would ask me, you know, why are you going to, why did you start this organization to help these people over there who might be some of the poorest, but they're not your own countrymen? And I think that sometimes in our culture, we're so we're just, we have blinders on. We don't see the whole world, the full picture. Um, we only know what we know and we live in paradise in, in many ways. Um, but this quote I thought would go great with, and, and you could take it from there, but it says, if you have food in your fridge, clothes on your back, a roof over your head and a place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of the world. If you have money in your bank, your wallet, and some spare change, you are among 8% of the world's most wealthy. If you woke up this morning with more, with more health than illness, you are more blessed than the million people who will not survive this week. If you have never experienced the danger of battle, the agony of imprisonment or torture, or the horrible hunger pangs of starvation, you are luckier than 500 million people alive and that are still suffering. Amen. To that, I mean, it's remembering. It, I think it has to do is to remember. I do believe that miracles are not an exception; they are the rule. Wow! At turning the whole thing upside down, we always say, "Oh, it's a miracle! It's a miracle!" Well, look around, man. You know, everything around us right now, in you and Amy mm. and me and everybody, is a miracle. I agree with that. The breath in my lungs, the beating heart in your chest, the cells, beautiful that are mind changing, everything that 
right now everything is so if you start with the idea that everything is a miracle and at times it doesn't feel like it mm. right i mean we all have issues right i mean my wife passed away in 2019 i did not think it was a miracle but mm. uh if i look at it who am i to say you know who am i to possess to you know decide it's mine right uh, the universe has a different had a different story mm. for you but everything is is a miracle and and mm. when it's not a miracle it's an exception right and right before we sat down and other times you've told me about your wife but i i think since you brought her up just now maybe we could honor her and y'all's relationship together right now i really appreciate that justin i mean we were married for 33 years and she was the best friend and uh, wow. never thought that i would lose mm. i would lose her to cancer and it came out of nowhere um on the tuesday she was skiing and she was happy and then on wednesday someone came to my classroom and say well your wife had an accident she turned out she had a seizure and that mm. was the beginning of the end um never take anything that you have for granted almost mm. you know i mean that's what i've learned i look at it and say maybe i could have been a better husband over the past 33 years and so on that crossed my mind right yeah. i could have loved her more and so on and it was she was a gift to my life so when you love someone and that that person is really precious to you it's a gift yeah and that gift is can be taken away mm. it's not you know you get attached to it uh sooner or later it it might be taken away mm. um it's a great lesson in humility uh it's a great le- lesson of acceptance and and life goes on and you move forward and believe me i think of her all the time but that's the way it is i still have you know great work to do and yeah. um but i think when when you have that gift of somebody in your life i mean my recommendation is praise each moment mm. of that for that gift praise it i mean that's you know uh and i see i, I look at both of you right now and yes. i say like i'm so happy for both of you wow and to be you know to be together and you need to every minute you need to praise that 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 relationship i agree i agree and what would be what would be one of your favorite moments that you can or memories with your wife why do you think she became your best friend it grows on you right i mean a relationship yeah. at the beginning when you went well i was 31 32 and she was 31 you have no clue what you are doing right i mean ignorance is bliss when you when you meet somebody and you decide to get married with that person and and it grows i mean we had two children and mm. um and it grows on you and some days are good some days are a little bit more challenging but that's the way it is i mean you build up that relationship and pretty soon you know you find out that the person next to you in bed is your best friend right mm. and i mean i mean i still miss the idea of waking up in the morning and say i love you to her and going to bed at night before going to bed going to sleep and say i love you too 
you know, these are precious moments that may sound obvious, but at the time they are very precious. And um, the last thing we did together was to go to Tahiti on a trip oh. uh, a few weeks before she was diagnosed with cancer. And it was our last trip together, but what a beautiful trip that was, you know, um, to be in a, on a small, living in a small hut over, above the water, over the water and so on. It was beautiful. It was a gift. Yeah. Wow, that sounds beautiful. Uh, Bernard already told me I need to take you there. <laughs> he told maybe. me to. Okay. <laughs> I, think, I think the two of you need to go. I mean, United, okay. I don't want to sound like uh, United as a direct flight between San Francisco and Papahiti. There we go. And if you've never been to Tahiti, um, the first time I was in Tahiti, I was single uh, 35 years ago. I fell in love with all the women in Tahiti. <laughs> Every five minutes, I wanted to marry a Tahitian woman. You know. uh, that was hard at that time, but um, I survived it. Yeah, <laughs> you survived. And you found the love of your life. And I uh, I really appreciate you sharing that because that's- No, thank you for asking. For, but, for someone that's a- What's her name? Huh? What was her name? Robin. Robin. Robin, yes. For someone that maybe they're going through something similar recently or to help someone that maybe is preparing for a loss um, or is going to grieve, what would you, what would you tell them that you've learned? I, I've, I think for me, I've seen some people lean so far away from grieving that it's it's really hard for them to get through it. And one of the most beautiful, hardest, but one of the most beautiful things I've seen the pygmy people do is they allow themselves the space to truly grieve and, and to then move forward. But this podcast is called Overcome, Overcome with Justin Wren. And not that you ever fully overcome that, but what would be something you might be able to share with someone that could be helpful? Thank you for asking that, because grieving, it's um, two years later, mm -hmm. after her death, I'm still grieving, yeah. right? And it, 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 it changes. Um, it changes from the day you lose somebody to the day. In fact, it's also pre-grieving. As you know, somebody mm. doesn't have too many months left. Um, how do you grieve ahead of time? Um, I don't think there's any one recipe to deal with grief. Um, what I found useful is being, having friends, mm. family, and making sure that you have a, um, a therapist mm. you can talk to. I was lucky to have a therapist for 13 months. In Boulder, Colorado, we have hospices and they provide you 13 months of counseling. Uh, it can be one-on-one -on -one or it can be as part of a group. Um, that helped, not completely. Um, you never forget somebody, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the same way as when you lose your parents, you don't forget them. Um, it's like um, they are still there. Um, because of them, it's you are who you are today, right? Um, and for men, I think that um, is to accept that, you know, crying is a good, um, is a good, um, I would say, technique 
letting go, crying, not because if you ignore the grief, it's going to come back even stronger. There's yeah. no doubt. So you need to jump into the swimming pool of grief and swim in it, and 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 try to stay afloat. Let's put it mm. that way. Um, it's not easy. You move on. You accept. You cry, and it's okay to cry. It's okay, especially for a man. You need to give yourself permission that you're not that macho after all. That mm. you know, um, it's not easy. Yeah. That's so true. Bernard, thank you for sharing. Um, thank you for being so open and vulnerable and real. Oh, I'm vulnerable. Um, yeah. As much, you know, I have nothing to well, hide there. I mean, that, uh, but the same thing about how do you grieve when you see children blow up in front of you. I mm -hmm. mean, when you go to the field and you see pain and suffering, you come back home changed also. You can grieve the loss of someone. You can also grieve uh, what, based on what you see in the world today, especially if you do work in developing countries. And I'm sure that you saw some things that were challenging to you, Justin, when you went to uh, in your work there in Africa. How do you deal with that? How do you reconcile, you know, pain and suffering at the local level? a uh, loss at the local level, a child looking at you with big eyes and starving and dying. Hmm. How do you reconcile that with our life as usual, right? Um, and then so, you know, as they say, it's important for the healer to be healed. I mean, hmm. who heals the healer? Hmm. That's... Because if you keep on going and, okay, I'm going to work here, I'm going to work in a refugee camp here. You know, I remember visiting that refugee camp in, uh, in Greece where I talked to a psychotherapist. She was there. She said, we don't last more than six months here. Mm. After six months, we are worn out. We cannot take it anymore. Okay? These are people, professional people who are trained to be therapists, right? Right. And they deal with violence, they deal with, you know, rape, they deal with corruption, they deal with kids committing suicide, and here they are, right? Uh, who heals them? Mm. Where do they go? Do they talk to another therapist? So if you are willing to do this kind, if you are called to do this kind of work, humanitarian work, call it that way, and you're going to face some unpleasant situations, and you'll face many of them, right? How do you handle the crisis? Go back home and cry, like I've done many times? Mm. Who do you talk to? That's an, I think, how do you, you know, overcome the pain and the suffering that you see and you are willing to take care of, right? Um, we are human beings. Mm. Um, that's something to that's something to to think about. How do you do yeah. it? How have you done again, it? Again, I think the same way, well, how do I do it? I don't think I have any any solution. It's to um I can only go to the field for only so long. I need mm. to get out. Like even if I work somewhere, um a remote village, I try to find a little hotel not too far away where I can de De disconnect yeah. from it and come back. Because I've tried, you know, the idea of staying in a village, sleeping 
uh, drinking dirty water, and so on. Uh, it sounds noble, you know, oh my God, you know, here's Mother Teresa. You know what, when you have a few days later, you have diarrhea that, you know, drains your your blood, your, your body, or you have malaria, or what have you there. You, have, you are no good to anybody. You are yeah. no good to you. You are not good to the people you're trying to help. So you've got to take care of yourself, right? And then so I usually find a little hotel with a clean bed and preferably an AC unit, which yeah. is really nice, not always, but uh, just to disconnect. Otherwise, you go crazy. Yeah. I, I admire the people who, um, like Doctors Without Borders, who stay for a long time. Well, we got one right here. Wait, you well, stayed for yeah. one year, right? Yeah. yeah. And and, the, and my body took a beating. Um, no now kidding. I, I, there was moments that I could never replace being able to live with them, listen to them, learn from them so that we could love them. But I think that was probably my younger days where going back for that extended period of the time, I mean, the things you talked about uh, in the 5,000, 5,000, 5,000, water and sanitation, I've had waterborne disease, intestinal parasites, amoebas, uh, bacterias, the malaria, um, shigella, or uh, all, all sorts of things. And I've had friends, two friends that we've buried from tuberculosis, so many from malaria, also so many from, from waterborne disease. And what I didn't know at that time was when people would talk about things like compassion fatigue, I think when I first started going, I was 23 years old, the, like the young students that you help. And they're so fired up that like nothing's going to stop them. They can run through a wall. And, uh, but I would come back and I, I think I would have culture shock, culture shock from, um, yeah, things that people would care so much about or fight about. And I couldn't even sleep in my bed when I came back home because I was like, well, they don't have beds and why do I deserve one or whatever? And not that that's true at all. Like that that's was a true. misconception. But it was just I was I was messed up from some of the things taking women to the hospital after they were tied to trees and gang raped and it's like a kind of survivor's um, guilt or something. Yeah, a little bit. And so lately, and I, what I was going to say earlier about saying thank you for sharing all that about grief is you by being vulnerable yourself, and by I would consider you a mentor of mine, and I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Um, but I was able to come to you and at one of my low points and be able to share, Hey, tomorrow or next week or whatever it was, I'm going to treatment because I think I would bottle things up and I would, uh, what would you say? Stuff it instead of dealing with it. And one of the things I've learned so much and kind of what you're saying, and Amy wrote me a note before I went to treatment and I read it while I was there. It said, face it all, feel it all. And magic happens. And I've spoke about that on one of my last podcasts, but I, I really think that when you avoid it, it, it always comes back and hits harder. I agree. No, if you avoid it, it's the worst case. Yeah. Because it's going to come back and in and grow on you. Yeah. To Full a force. Where you're going to go crazy. Yeah. So I think that uh, accepting vulnerability, it's part of life, right? Um, and I think we have tools to handle that mm. vulnerability as best as we can. Uh, could be friends, could be lovers, could be, you know, partners, could be, and also talking to some uh, therapist mm -hmm. who help you. I mean, think about, you know, the people who went to war, right? I mean, people went to Afghanistan and Iraq yeah. and so on. I mean, how they feel when they come back. Mm. 
you know, the PTSD completely changed, right? Yeah. Um, how did they deal with it? I mean, and you are in a combat situation and you shot at somebody, you were shot at somebody. I mean, that's, it's not a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you deal with how do you deal with that pain and that suffering? And um, and we know quite well that PTSD, I mean, makes people quite sick. I mean, yeah. some people have a hard time recovering from it. Fightfortheforgotten.org. You can go check out Fight for the Forgotten, the foundation that I started. It is my passion project. It is something that I love so much because of the people we get to help. We get to help the pygmy tribe who adopted me in help themselves. We say opportunity is greater than charity. Charity can be great, but opportunity is just always better. That's why we've drilled something like 80 water wells already, providing over 30,000 people clean water. We've started sustainable farms, bought back over 3,000 acres of land for the people who originally owned it, put it in their name. We've built 32 homes, and now we're about to start a health center, a school, and a marketplace. They're going to have a maternity ward, a pediatrics unit, and a dental suite. You can join the Fight for the Forgotten Fight Club at fightfortheforgotten.org. We would love, love, love to invite you on this journey to join this fight arm in arm with us. Our fight club, it's a monthly giving club. You can give $5 or more a month, and that empowers us to empower people. Thank you for being on this journey with us. I invite you to come along for the ride. It's been absolutely epic, putting love and compassion in action and fighting for people. Fightfortheforgotten.org. Join our fight club. Well, that's what I've really been working through as well in therapy. And um, it's true, like it'll sneak up on you or sometimes it changes the way you see things. But I know that this podcast will probably have to do a part two, especially since we're making a five to 10 year commitment uh, minimum uh, for a project that that we're beginning together, um, but I wanted to talk about engineering because you have such one maybe for people that don't know exactly what engineering is. Maybe there's a quick definition, and then you've talked about re-engineering engineering education. That's what that's what we need to do is re-engineer it. Well, engineering has to do with using science and applying it to various things. Like I'm a civil engineer. What civil engineers do, they, I mean, this house was designed by, you know, civil engineers, buildings, roads, and so on, water, wastewater. I'm, I focus more on the area of water, wastewater, and energy, the coupling between the two. So it's really taking science and applying it and making people, you know, uh, they have access to services, they you can commute from point A to point B. I mean, all the roads that you used this morning yeah. were designed by by civil engineers. Uh, the building that you see, civil engineering, uh, the water, the wastewater, when you flush the toilet, it mm. goes somewhere. Or, or, you know, that was also designed by uh, engineers and, and so on. So, so no, when I meant by reinventing engineering, over the years I've been you know teaching for 40 years and I realized that... Um, engineering education as we know it today, um, it's a dead horse. It's really a, a, um, a dinosaur that is dying. We're essentially doing the same thing than we were doing 40 or 50 years ago. At the same time, the world is changing big time. Mm. So traditional engineering education is to train people over four years, you know, boot camp, four years, eight, eight, 
it's the best is you learn all the fundamentals of engineering and goodbye. So by reinventing engineering is how do we bring how do we bring young people into real projects, right? Um, that's what started Engineers Without Borders. When I came back from Belize the first time around, I told my students about the work, you know, the village uh, of San Pablo. And students say, oh, I want to be part of it. I want to be, I want to get involved. And I asked them, why so much excitement, right? Uh, and they say, well, we want meaningful engineering education. And the term meaningful, I never thought it was not meaningful. And it's true. Traditional engineering education is super boring. It's, it's not meaningful. We don't bring meaning in terms of what is the impact on society. How do we, how do, we do engineering for four to five billion people on our planet today whose job is to try to stay alive by the end of the day? We do engineering for about one to two billion people on our planet. The others, we ignore them, right? Mm, they're forgotten. You know, well, you know, because it's not profitable to do work in middle of Africa or whatever you there. That's the main reason. We could solve all those water problems overnight. We have the know-how, right? I mean, it's, it's not. And also, it would be interesting to me, development is a two-way street. What do we learn from native cultures? Right. I remember being in several years ago in a small remote area of the Amazonas with some colleagues. We sat into, it was a tribe, and, um, and the people told us, well, let's have a meeting. It was a huge building, a huge structure. Um, inside, temperature was, what, 75 degrees. Outside was 90 degrees, 100 degrees. I look around and say, where are the AC units here? Air conditioning. There was no air conditioning. How did they do it? The, that, that type of engineering, I want to learn about it. Yeah. You know, here we had a space that was cool and outside was super hot and there was no, there were no fans. There was not an AC unit to keep it cool, right? So I'm really interested about learning from, call it indigenous creativity or whatever. Yeah. How do we bring it into, into our world how do we improve it in partnership with the local communities? So we all benefit from it. But there's that approach in engineering that we, the white man, know everything about engineering, about the rest of the world. We're going to tell you know, people how to, how to jump. Here is an AC unit. Uh, it's going to work for you. Um, you know, oh, here's a water pump. Um, it's going to work for you. I think I mentioned to you yesterday, 60% of water pumps in the world, in Africa, fell after six months. Mm. And there's over 230,000 broken water wells in Africa right now, which is billions of wasted charitable that's dollars. That's bad engineering. Yeah. I mean, that's bad. And that was probably designed by some engineers and so on, but they forgot the human dimension of the mm -hmm. project, i.e., hey, is, does anybody in a village know how to fix the pump? Maybe mm -hmm. we should train somebody to do so. Do yeah. they have any money at all to yeah. buy is some spare parts? Is it locally affordable? Yeah. Is it affordable? Is it, does it create division mm -hmm. among the community? I remember it being in a village in India where there was a woman, lost her husband. She had four or five kids. She was about, I don't know, 100 feet away from a water well. 
She could not use it because she was of a different caste. Mm. She had to walk three miles to get water because she was from a different caste. Whoever decided on putting the water well there did not take under consideration the fact that they are different castes in a community. Where do we train engineers to think about caste? Another example, a village in Mali. There was a pump that was not working. My colleague, um, Kathy, said, okay, we can fix it. So we took the entire system out. A few, you know, a few screws were missing. Put it back. Water pumping was, the, the pump was working. Nobody was using it. Why? Because people believed there was an evil spirit in the pump. Wow. And, okay, until you bring the shaman to remove the evil spirit, nobody's going to touch it. Another one, people, we know that washing hands goes a long way, right? Right. In that village, say people, wash your hands with soap. Oh, no. Because if we wash our hands, uh, our spirit is going to go away. Mm. Okay, now you are in charge of getting people to wash their hands. That's a heck of a challenge. We don't teach evil spirits and water pumps in engineering schools. They may or may not exist. I don't know. Sometimes there's an evil spirit in my car that prevents it from, from <laughs> taking off in the morning, right? Or maybe they are right. But these are issues that have nothing to do with technology. Right. They have to do with the human nature, yeah. right? And engineers are so stupid when they go into a village, what they do, okay, let's get going. Let's pour the concrete. Let's do this. I say, whoa, 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 whoa. Sit down. Yeah. Listen. Yeah. It's relationship, 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 relationship. Then we may pour some concrete afterwards. Mm. It's, it's, they cannot comprehend that because they were never trained that way. And that's why with Engineers Without Borders, at least there's hope for those young people to discover a type of engineering that is different from the traditional useless type of engineering that is taught in most universities in the world, right? Yeah, that's so good. And I've, I've always tried to say that opportunity is greater than charity. Charity can be great, but opportunity is always better. And what I mean by that is I think sometimes the traditional model of NGOs, nonprofits, um, maybe traditional old school, or I mean, still now, uh, is they go into a community and push the people out of the way, almost. I mean, they don't actually put their hands on them, but in the way that they operate, it's like, you guys sit down on the bench. We're the A team. You're the B team. Let us do this for you because you can't do it for yourself. Or even the way that they show up, I call it show up, uh, blow up and blow out. <laughs> you, you announce your arrival with a parade, you throw a party, you take your pictures and then you leave and, and you don't have any actual lasting relationship. You come back the hero and, uh, and they, the, even the person that did the work doesn't ever know that it never continued. Um, or that it might not have just had a temporary or a short term benefit but it was actually a long-term deficit or like a, a negative effect where and i don't think enough people are thinking it all the way through so that's why i love that i get to listen to you and see how you've done it and in the the experience that you have because i really want what we get to do together um to be of long-lasting impact where it can Absolutely. be an example justin and 
I'm not for charity. Charity can work at the beginning, you know, when people have no food in their stomach yeah. and they need to dig, a, they dig a, a well or a trench there. I think charity would help. But to me, it's about empowerment. It's mm -hmm. about development. You know, it's about, you know, you, you hear, don't give people a fish, teach them how to fish. That sounds fine. Let's go further. Mm. Let's, create, let's create a fishing industry. <laughs> let's create a, a market for the fishing industry. Let's create entrepreneurs who can essentially sell fish or what have you there. Now we're talking. Yeah. You know, giving, I mean, it's like giving people a fish, teach them how to fish. I'm so sick and tired of that statement. It's so, um, it's so kumbaya-like, you know, I mean, yeah. three huggers on steroids <laughs> type of approach to the world. But no, it's really empowerment because this, everywhere you go on the planet, I think people have a gift. They have a head, they have hands, they have legs. They have a heart. They can do something. I find creativity everywhere we go. One time I was in the middle of the Sahara in Mauritania, and we asked some, some solar panels for water pump. And um, I needed somebody to fix the solar panel. So, okay, where do you find somebody in the middle of Sahara? I look around in the village, and it was sticking out of one of the homes. There was a little wind turbine. When there, that's the guy I want to talk to, right? And sure enough, he knew everything about solar panels. In fact, at one time, our wiring was wrong, and he corrected us, right? That's that guy awesome. did not have a PhD or a master's degree or a BS degree or what have you there. The guy was good, yes. very good. He had a lived experience, a lot ah. of trial and error, and he knew what he was doing. These are the people you want to and work brilliant. with and on power so that they yeah. create they can create a fishing industry. So I I I agree with you on uh the charity side of things. I've thought it should always be like reserved for times of maybe war, famine, natural disaster, um uh, maybe a pandemic, things like that, but um but not not necessarily at all for people in poverty because if you ask them what they want, it's, we want the tools. We want the education. We want the opportunity. Right. We want to know how to do it for That's ourselves. Right. And I'm wondering also, because recently I had a, a conversation with someone that, that basically asked me to stop using the word empower. And I was like, what, is, what do you mean? Why, why is that a bad word? It's the word Which they've word? always asked. Which empower. Word? empowerment empower really what's wrong with I, that's what i was going to ask if you've if you've heard because uh they were basically saying that means we have the power and they don't and oh. so and so now you have to come in and give them the power because they don't have it and i was like well i think of it differently i think i think that one they've said we don't have any power and not that i can give it to them but they're like if you give us the tools that will give us power if you give us the knowledge they'll give us power if you give us an opportunity or if you help us learn what that is that will empower us to be the change we want to see in our own culture and community. Yeah. So I've always thought of it as a very positive, empowering word for, for myself, for them. Um, and I think that is what my nonprofits in the business of, of doing is creating opportunity. And I think that's empowering. So I didn't know if you had any, if you had heard that before. No. Um, I think it's very common in, in the, nonprofit world or, or if they're doing it right and em uh, empowering the way i look at it it's 
I'm not into the business of poverty reduction. I'm in the business of wealth enhancement. Mm. I like that. By wealth, I'm not talking about money. Mm. I'm talking about creativity. As I mentioned to guy, I mentioned Better to you the guy who had that wind turbine there. He needs to be unpowered. He needs to be. He needs to be. I don't want to say that he needs to be because it sounds like I'm telling him what to do. But it would be nice if, we're, by working together, that person could create a small business. Um, is empowered to create a business, has the resources and the skills to essentially create a small business and scale up. Mm. Um, and have it, even more impact. And having more impact. Um, you call it empowerment or not. I know words can... You have to be careful about words, right? Um, at the same time, I have a hard time with people say, oh, that word means this, that word means that. Okay, just, I mean, cool off, take a breathe, okay? Uh, come <laughs> yeah. on. I mean, I did not mean this. I did not mean that. Yeah. Um, for me, for me, just to go back to empowerment, like that is in the Ugandan culture and vocabulary exactly. of what they're asking for. And it might not be our same English, but I think our English, even in many ways, maybe there's been certain people that have done it certain wrong ways, but that's not me and that's not them. That's not what they're asking for. They're asking for it in the appropriate use of the term, which is like give. Usually it comes from academics who love to argue <laughs> for the sake of arguing. Right. And um, I usually tell them, get a life, you know, just get a life, get, just get I mean, come on, you know, uh, if you really want to to do something, come along with me and let's yeah. go into that refugee camp and you'll see about uh, your fancy your fancy words. I mean, the work we're trying to do there in Uganda, it's about empowering the local community and those people are not stupid. Yeah, you know, they're, they're extremely resilient. Yes. Talk about resilient. I, I, I'm not as resilient as they are. They have experienced flood, they have experienced drought, they have experienced famine, and so on. They have been able to bounce back, and we, maybe we should learn from them. Yes. Oh, I... Right? I mean, I've I've had a lot of really great people in my life, but some of the most I've absolutely learned from the most about how to be, how to love, um, how to be present, yeah. I mean, it's from it's from the Pygmy people. It's from the Mabuti in, in Congo. It's from the Batwa in Uganda. You might like this. I don't know if I've ever told you it, but they would tell me, uh, you Americans, you Westerners, you guys all have the watches, but we're the ones with the time. <laughs> I heard that um, something very similar. When Two things. When people, last time someone said, I'm going to Africa, and what should I do? I said, the first thing you do when you go to Africa, throw your watch away. <laughs> because no, <laughs> that's okay. Things are going to happen the way they're going to happen. And I can give you examples after examples where things happen out of nowhere. It was amazing. And this idea of, uh, I heard that same remark about the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, that Israelis have a watch, whereas the Palestinians have time. Wow. I heard exactly the same thing. Wow, yeah. And it's they were saying that They were saying that to us because um, when we got there, we had, we had big goals, high hopes. And uh, some of the, 
wrestling with the earth to get a water well in sometimes, especially the manual drilling method, which we'll, we'll do many different approaches, but sometimes where you can't drive in a, 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 a water truck, a water drilling machine, um, you have to hike it in. And so we would think we'd get it done in a week or 10 days. And then sometimes it would take a full month because collapsing zones and all these things that you, uh, that we would learn by, you know, trial by error or whatever, like learning that way. And, uh, it was, they would be like, Hey, poly, poly, slow down, slow down, be here, be here with us. And, uh, it's almost like Ram Dass, be here now, but they'd just be like, just be here, calm down. Come sit down and eat with us. And some of those conversations turned into some of the biggest teaching moments in my there life. There you go. And you have forced to surrender. Mm. You know, you surrender to a way of life that is a little bit uh, more down to earth, where people spend more time talking to each other. Um, there's, there's, no perfect, there's no perfect system of life, right? Right. But I think it's um, the, in the work that you are doing, in the work we are doing, I look at development as a two-way street. It's not a one-way street like, you know, the UN and USAID and all those people would like to believe. Oh, let's get the work done right away. We have a deadline right now. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to be, go ahead. I come back. Just go ahead. Let's talk six months from now. And they usually come back. Some people are super frustrated, and some other people say, whoa, I learned some lessons. Good for you. Yeah. Well, you learned a lesson that you were telling us about, but one of your favorite questions, isn't it, what is the meaning of life? Oh, when what's you go the to these new places? I, to, I, it's, um, I don't have an answer to it, but at least, um, <laughs> you know, I've been everywhere I go and I see some holy people. I usually ask a question, hey, what's the meaning of life? So um, I mentioned that to you the other day. I was not one time in Kathmandu in Nepal, dinner time, with a bunch of friends, and there was a Buddhist monk ahead of me, in front of me. And he, uh, his name was Meteya, I don't remember. And he told us that he talks to the Dalai Lama and so on. Good. And I say, hey, Meteya, I have a question for you. What's the meaning of life? He looked at me. Everybody else around the table stopped eating. <laughs> say, finally, we're going to get the answer, right? We have always been looking for. Hmm. See, that's a good question. You see, that's really a good question. They say, well, meaning of life is chocolate. I say, chocolate. Where <laughs> on earth did you get chocolate? Oh, he say, I talked to my phone, Siri. I asked <laughs> that question, and I got the answer: chocolate. I say, whoa. I tried, by the way. I tried about maybe a hundred times. What's the meaning of life? You may want to try that at home. And I got chocolate too at one time. I don't know what it is. Maybe <laughs> my French accent or whatever you there, but it became chocolate. And so I asked him, I said, chocolate? I say, what kind? A dark chocolate or milk chocolate? I say, oh, so that's another question. I say, you know, you need to go on a path and find another Buddhist monk who may want, who may tell you which one it is, right? I mean, it sounded so prophetic and so spiritual around chocolate. But, you know, I've been thinking about chocolate and say, well, chocolate, chocolate is sweet. Life can be sweet. Chocolate is bitter. Life can be bitter. Chocolate can be addictive. 
life can be addictive. So when you think about chocolate, there's a reason why he told me chocolate, right? Yeah. To start thinking about it. But the best um, answer that I got, I don't know from whom, the meaning of life is to find your gift. Mm. The purpose of life is to share your gift. Mm. That I'm very comfortable with that. I think finding your gift, we talked about it earlier. What is the unique gift that you, mm. the only you can give? You, you know, Amy, bring, you bring to the world. Mm. You know, there's something special about you that I don't have, Amy doesn't have, and vice versa, all three of us, all of us. What is it? Mm. What is it? It can. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to build. You know, to be to build a mountain. It's to be a good person. Yeah. To be nice to others. To listen to others. To be to to bring a smile to people. I don't know, but finding that gift, um, to me was. For me, my gift is to be of service. That's it. Yeah. At the beginning, like a good engineer, I had a few sentences. I'm going to do this, this, and this. I said, that's all BS. That's bullshit. My gift is to be of service, period. Mm. You pay me for the service, good. You don't pay me for the service, fine. Just to be of service, period. That's it. I love it. that. Be of service. Be of maximum service. Not even maximum service. To Just be of be service. Just be of service. <laughs> yeah. I that's like it. That. I don't I want to put an adjective in front of it because that that implies essentially uh if it wasn't maximum service then I failed. Yeah. But just to be of service. Just to be of service. And yeah. then service can be, I don't know. It varies from day to day. Yeah. But I was you know um when in 1997 two things converged in my life. My engineering and um when I met those people from Billy's. So I decided that I could do both. Mm. And that led to Engineers Without Borders. And for us that don't know exactly, or for us listening, the people listening that don't know exactly the impact that Engineers Without Borders has had, I mean, is it correct to say you have had over 17,000 engineers? We have or? about 17,000 volunteers, professional Wow. And students. So if there are some people who listen to, to this podcast, we are professional engineers and would like to get involved. We have professional chapters. We about half and half, half okay. professional engineers and half student engineers um, working in 48 different countries. Wow. We have about 600 plus projects, I guess, around the world. I don't run the organization anymore. Yeah. I, I did that for four or five years. Yeah. Um, I have my own projects, yeah. right? Uh, also, I do projects in different places around the world. Right. Um, and we're going to do one together. And I, I want to respect your time because together you... And the one that you have, and I'm really excited about this project yeah. that you have there. Um, this is a development project. This is an empowerment project. You want to call it whatever yeah. you want. Um, it's not a charity project. It's about making sure that local people there have the resources and the skills to essentially uh, for a brighter future. Yeah. In their own way, the mm. the uh, uh, the local way, um, in the pygmy way, not the American way, not the yeah. Justin way or the Bernard's way or Amy's way. It, it is the pygmy's way. I mean, they are in charge. 
Yeah. That's what I love about this project and why I'm so excited to partner with you and have your expertise and resources or your experience um, to be able to, you've given us so many great ideas. You, you flew in town yesterday uh, to help and, and we've, Amy and I have come up to see you in Denver and you and I are going to go to Africa this year Absolutely. Uh, to Uganda and you said something pretty interesting and we'll, we'll have to do a part two, if that's okay with you on the podcast. And we'll, we'll do a deeper dive into what we're doing in Uganda, mm -hmm. but from broad strokes, what you see us doing there yesterday, you got me so fired up. Amy saw me this morning waking up and she goes, you're smiling. And I was like, yeah. And it was almost like the first time we met and Amy's like that smile on your face. You can't fake it. It's so real and genuine. I just got so fired up today because of our conversations yesterday, but you said something to the effect that this could be an exemplary Absolutely. project that shows people what's possible. Absolutely. And it takes time. I mean, yeah. we talked about most of the projects I, um, I, uh, I'm presenting, people want an answer right away. So in your case, we agree it could be five years and 10 years. Yeah. And this could be an exceptional project in the sense that uh, the approach that we are using, not mm -hmm. the traditional approach there of you know colonial colonialistic type of approach, right. an empowerment type of approach, doing a good mapping and assessment of the community and what they need, their capacity, their vulnerability, and working with them essentially on a regular basis and in a participatory manner, so that they come. We. Uh, uh, it enhance their wealth. We don't reduce their poverty. Mm. You know, again, it's not poverty reduction, it's wealth enhancement. Those people are wealthy. Mm. And I'm not saying that lightly in a sense that they have a brain, they have a heart, they have hands, they have legs, they want a brighter future for their children, mm. and they have a vision for themselves. So it's our responsibility to essentially help them fulfill their mission statements, their vision. Mm. And that's a different approach right from the beginning. Instead of, oh, they need water, they yeah. need food, they need energy, of course they need that. But I think that what you are presenting in your project, it's more an in, in integrated approach to community development mm. compared to a more uh, silo approach to community development, which is a traditional way. Oh, let's bring the water expert, okay. Let's bring the energy expert. Let's bring the food expert. Guess what? None of those experts talk to each other. Let's right. not do that. Yeah. That's, I think that by doing an integrated approach where we look at what's good for the community as defined by the community, that's the way to go. Yeah, I think there's a Swahili saying, Tamika Pamoja, and uh, it means working together. Working and so together. we've got to work together with the community, work together even with the, the local officials and the government on a, whether it's local, state, or national level, and also with all the organizations or their partners, like everybody communicating with one another, saying, this is how we do it, and uh, and this is how they want it. This is what they're inviting exactly. in. Exactly. This is what they need, want, desire, and are craving and will become part of to where they'll contribute to their own change because they want to see it just as bad or more, a lot more than we do. That's and true. so we just have to be the spark plug because they're the engine. They're going to be the ones that make it run. That, that's, I think that's a great analogy, the spark plug. We create that little, you know, startup 
so that the engine is going to run. It's already yeah. in place. They need the spark plug. I, I love I love that analogy there. Thank you. And, and as people say, I think that we don't develop people. People develop themselves. Mm. We are not in a position of tell them, do this and do that. If you ever do that, you'll be repeating the same mistakes as everybody else. Right. And I think giving ourselves, there's some emergency right now because of the community that yeah. needs to move yeah. from where they are to a new place. Right. I think it can be done. We were talking about different techniques there, like raised beds for agriculture, as it yep. can be done. And by the way, imagine someone making raised beds, right? That's a business. Yeah. So they, someone in the community, two or three people, yep. will create a business. Yeah. And they make raised beds for every um, every household. Right. And they teach them how to fill it up with dirt and how to plant things. And if you do rainwater collection system, you have a tank, a little bit elevated above the rice bed, and water will flow into the rice bed. They grow stuff that they want to grow, and they can sell that to the market. And right. so all in a sudden, I, I think that when you do development work, is to find the leverage points, mm. places to intervene in a system that the community can do, can work with, and the triggers change. Yeah. A tiny, it's called, you know, a leverage point. Mm, I love that. And the ripple effect will just continue. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It keeps on going. Mm. And you train trainers. I mean, the people who do rice beds for that community, but our community may have the, the local communities around and say, I want some too. Yeah. Right? That looks good. So all of a sudden, it kind of, it spreads like crazy. Mm. And that's what you want. Yes. Well, I'm so grateful for you. I know you have a flight uh, to get to, so I want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to thank you, you too. for being on the show. We are in um, great company. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in great company with you and with Amy. And uh, I really appreciate that you see our love, our love between us. I mean, that oh, blesses it, me. It, it's, uh, it's pretty solid, by the way, <laughs> between the two of you. I mean, and, and the energy is, is right there, and it's beautiful to see that. Oh. Thank when you, you see people who fall in love, they are in love with each other, it's precious. Mm, thank you, Bernard. Amy, do you have anything as we wrap up? No, that was wonderful. Thank you, Bernard. No, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you, you for have being here. a good here. day, okay? Yeah, thank you all for listening to Overcome with Justin Wren. We have overcome 100% of our darkest days. So rise up and overcome. Thank you. Yeah, Beautiful. thank you. Hey, don't forget to send your Overcome stories to overcomepodcast at gmail.com. And also, rate, review, subscribe, and follow Overcome with Justin Wren.